Hey everybody, I just finished up with our outdoor worship on the lawn service uh, for Sunday, July 5th. And I got back to the computer and realized that our live stream had cut out very early on, basically after the announcements. And uh, so I'm sorry for that. It's kind of been a source of frustration getting up online and getting everything to work seamlessly. Uh, but I thought that you guys might like to hear uh, something of the sermon. I can't give you the good stuff. I can't give you the the music from Joy and Holly and Olivia and Crystal, but hopefully we can in this sort of online space gather briefly around the word. And so this morning, um, as we experience and receive communion together, we set our eyes towards the table. But before that, we went um, into Luke chapter 16. And we're picking up here as we have been uh, navigating this kind of middle section of the Gospel of Luke. Um, the middle of Luke takes place in Samaria. It's the place where Jesus tells all these stories that helps move the disciples from their comfortable place in Galilee to Jerusalem, the climactic place of victory, where Jesus goes to the cross, into the tomb, and then the stones roll away, and he rises again and ascends to heaven as the place from which, to which then he sends the Spirit upon the church. Um, so Samaria, this middle section, chapters 9 through 19 in Luke, are helping us to navigate not only our move through the gospel, but also our move from like a comfortable pre-COVID-19 place to the place of victory. We have to move through this difficult space as we move from kind of in the course of the world from the garden through the fallen world to the new heavens and the new earth, we also need to learn how to move through difficulty and hardship and challenge, um, which can also come to us in the form of opportunity. And so as Jesus and his grace journeys with us, he also gives us opportunities um, to learn what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and not just of the world. So there's more here. And simply fallenness and brokenness and pandemic. Um, but, but there's something else. There's something that we might call grace. Uh, so we pick up in Luke chapter 16 with this really strange story. You know, last week we did the story of the prodigal son, which is one of the most beloved stories in the scriptures in the New Testament. And today we find one that is just as strange uh, as the pair of the prodigal son is beloved. It's the story of the dishonest manager. The church has struggled with how to understand this for centuries. Uh, scholars can break it apart, but they don't do a very good job of putting it back together. Um, Julian the Apostate in the Roman Empire tried to use this story in particular as a way um, to um, disavow Jesus and to cast dispersions upon Jesus as one who uh, advocated dishonesty. It's sort of a, an odd story. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to briefly, we're going to look at the story and, and take one look at how Jesus says we might understand it and apply it to our lives. Then what I'd like to do is connect the story of the prodigal son and the story of the dishonest manager, because in Luke, he puts them side by side. And I think he does that for a reason. I think as we get into them, we can begin to discover something of the very basis, sort of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us, not in these stories, but also through this whole travelogue 
as he walks with his disciples and continues to form them, their expectations and their hearts. So first, the story. Um, in this story, there's a rich man who um, owns a, a pretty vast amount of um, land and assets, and he's accumulated lots of things. There's a rich man who has a manager, and the manager is responsible for managing all of those assets, for handling accounts receivable, uh, for making sure that everything is being dealt with properly. He is the chief steward. He is in charge of all of this, not as his own stuff, but he, he has charge of it in care as he cares for it, um, the owner's possessions. So the owner calls the manager in and fires him because apparently the manager has not been doing a good job and the implication is that he has stolen from the owner. At this point, the manager says to himself, what am I going to do? He said, I'm too old to go work in the fields. I'm too proud to go and ask for help. And, and obviously enough, nobody's going to hire him as a manager if he just got fired for doing a poor job as a manager. What is he going to do? And, and in this part of the story, there's kind of like this dramatic pause. What is he going to do? And we discover what he does by watching him do it. First, he goes um, to the he goes to the tenant farmers who basically rent and farm the land that the owner possesses, and they pay him in kind. Meaning, uh, if they produce olives, then they give to the owner a share of the oil, and that's how they pay their rent. And so he first he goes to uh, a man and says, "How much oil do you owe?" the landowner, and he tells him the amount. And he basically says, well, here's your bill. Why don't we change that and write in like half of it? And so the farmer is delighted. Uh, the manager has bought himself because the farmer doesn't yet know that he's been fired. He, he's bought himself a little bit of um, uh, care and, and appreciation from the farmer. He goes to the next farmer, how much, how much wheat do you owe? He tells him, oh, here's your bill. Let's write down a little bit less than that. Let's write in about half. Every, again, everyone's delighted. He goes to the third farmer. He does the same thing. Um, now, look, how, look what he's actually done. Look what he's affected. He has gone to each of these farmers who didn't yet know that he was not representing the owner. And in effect, he has bought himself, by cutting them a break, some future influence and appreciation. So that apparently when they, when they discover that, that uh, he's been fired, he would still be able to come in to their home. He would still have some influence there, and they may even, out of gratitude, be able to care for him. The second thing he accomplishes is a bit more subtle, but he has also put the owner in an interesting position. The owner can, because they have assumed all along the manager was working on his behalf, the owner can reap the benefit of being thought of and appreciated and talked about in the community as a generous man. And in an honor-based culture, an honor-based culture in which they lived, this is a big deal. It's actually worth a whole lot. Will he be known as a generous person? The manager's put him in this position. Or will he say, no, 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 actually, the manager had it all wrong. He, I had fired him. He had no authority to do any of that. You still owe your full amount thereby disappointing the farmers 
And again, having these be the little voices that are talking and uh, developing a reputation for him in the community. So here's what happens. The manager, too old to work, too proud to ask for assistance, couldn't be a manager anymore, has affected a couple very significant things. He now has a place to go, and who knows what the owner might do. Here's what the owner does. He calls him, and surprise, surprise, he commends the manager for his shrewdness. Commends him for his shrewdness. Jesus then takes this parable and says, the sons of the world are in fact very shrewd in their dealings with the things of the world. To, to borrow from Eugene Peterson's sort of um, interpretation of this, he says, Jesus wants the sons of light. In effect, he's saying, you disciples, uh, you who belong to Christ, be as shrewd in dealing with the things of heaven, the things of God, as the people of the world are shrewd in dealing with the things of the world. He commends the manager for his shrewdness. And we'll get to why maybe in just a minute. But I think we can all hear that word and say, you know what? Um, think for a moment about how careful, how calculating you have been in navigating and preserve, preserving your life in a pandemic. Think about how carefully and attentively you have treated um, your excursions out of the home your visits to the grocery store, your attention to the news and all the constant updates. How much time have you given to figuring out how to live in the world right now? How much attention have you given to um, maybe preserving your retirement accounts or managing your money during this time of economic uncertainty? Are you checking those things daily? Are you checking the markets multiple times in the course of a morning? How carefully have you attended to maintaining a job during this time of job scarcity and job loss, keeping yourself competitive in the marketplace, uh, updating um, all, the, all the different checkpoints that you need to update on your resume? How attentive have you been to th these things? And then think, how attentive have I been to the things of God? How carefully do you ask questions um, how intently do you open up the scriptures and begin to read over and over and seek out the meaning of these stories, which reveals to us something of the kingdom of God and who the Lord is and what he wants of us and how we are to live in this time and place? How, how much time, I think that's a good measure, how much time are you giving to the things of God? I think we can all hear that. How shrewdly are you dealing with ultimate things? How shrewdly are you dealing with temporal and worldly things? So there's maybe like a, a good first takeaway. But what I'd like to do is to hold the parable of the prodigal son next to the parable of the dishonest manager. Because Luke does it in his recording of the gospel. And I think he did that for a reason. Interestingly enough, both the prodigal son and the dishonest manager take from someone, take possessions and um, material wealth from someone in a position of ownership and authority over them. The prodigal son goes to his father, demands his share of the inheritance now. The dishonest manager has also been taking from the rich owner. 
The, pair, the, the prodigal son takes his inheritance and squanders it in lavish living in a far country. The dishonest manager stays home, but he too gets caught. He gets caught by the owner. Uh, it's, it, what, he ha what he once had is now gone. He gets caught by the rich owner. The prodigal son gets caught out by a famine striking the land. Something unexpected happens, and all that he had acquired and all that he thought he possessed, uh, whether it's his station or his inheritance, all this is gone. It's lost. The prodigal son finds himself in a position of um, really embarrassment. Uh, he finds himself in a pig pen eating slop, complete rock bottom, lowest that he could possibly imagine himself having gone. The uh, uh, the dishonest manager finds himself in in a similar position. He's too old to work the fields. He's too proud to ask for help. He can't maintain his job anymore. What is he going to do? They both find themselves in this position of having lost what they had, lost what they had taken, and now they don't know what in the world they're going to do moving forward. Um, and here's the key part, I think. The prodigal son, obviously enough, remembers his father's house. He has a memory of the father's house. And so he goes seeking not his return to his station as son, but a place with the servants because in his father's house, he remembers even the servants are treated well. They have food to eat and clothes on their backs. So there's a memory of the father's house and he casts himself upon the father's grace. Of course, the father welcomes him with open arms, uh, doing far more and anything beyond what he had imagined. But the dishonest manager does a similar thing. He also remembers something. He remembers the mercy of the rich owner, who when he fired him, only fired him. Yes, there is a consequence for his inappropriate behavior. Same way we saw a consequence for the wild and crazy living of the prodigal son. There's a consequence. He loses his job. But the rich owner apparently doesn't publicize this. He doesn't take him to court and demand that he repay everything that he had stolen, which was well within his rights, of course. There's a consequence, but there's also mercy. And the same way that the prodigal son casts himself upon the grace and the mercy of his father, so too does the dishonest manager cast himself. He doubles up on his He goes even further in casting himself on the mercy and the grace of the rich owner. He goes to the tenant farmers, and he lies to them about what they owe, and in effect, robs from the manager again. I mean, robs from the owner again. And you know what the owner does? He commends the manager for his shrewdness. In his recognition, I think, of the mercy of the rich owner. He has cast himself completely upon it. And I think that, a, that this is kind of the key to understanding this middle section in the Gospel of Luke. Over and over and over again, we get, we get these stories that tell us of God's grace and mercy, which accompanies us along the way. In success and in failure, in, in um, righteousness and in sin, still yet God is the same and treats us with mercy and grace. So here's how it began. Chapter 9, we started... Uh, we saw that this journey, this call that Jesus has to, to follow him is, is a journey that's necessary. It's difficult. It's urgent. We can't escape it. And yet it's blessed. Why is it blessed? 
because God in God's grace has sent Jesus to journey with us. And since we're with the Savior, it's a blessed thing. We learn next, as we trace out this middle section of Luke, that, we're, that we, as we make this trip, find ourselves at various points broken, beaten down, uh, robbed, lying in the ditch. What are we going to do? We discover that God in God's grace sends Jesus. Jesus is our good Samaritan who does not pass us by, but sees us in our woundedness and hurt, gathers us into his arms, takes us to a house and a room and seats us at a table and, and fills us with food and promises to return again and pay our debts. It's all grace here. The next two sections that we looked at had to do with the means of grace. The first of which was prayer. The Lord's prayer is this, uh, this way that Jesus teaches us in which we can commune with God, receive unity with God and union with him, which we can develop relationship. God in God's grace meets us on this journey we take and travels the length of it by our sides and even goes before us and beyond where we must go. Um, one of the means of grace was, was coming to corporate worship. And we saw the woman who went to the synagogue who was bent in on herself. And Jesus sees her and calls her and lays his hand upon her and says, You are free from your disability. In the same way that when we gather corporately, as we did on the lawn today, and as we do online now, uh, Jesus meets us where two or three are gathered. And he sees you and he calls you to himself, intending to, to straighten out which is bent and distorted in you. You who are created in the image of God but have turned in on yourself. Now he wants to refashion you. It's all grace. And we discover along this way and this road of grace uh, that we are called to be generous and humble. That's the way of the kingdom. Jesus is turning this world upside down. So those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. He graciously tells us what the kingdom looks like and invites us further into it. And even when we rob God of the gifts that he has given us. You know, in Genesis, humanity is spoken of as stewards. We're called to be stewards of creation, stewards of our lives, stewards of all that is. We're caretakers. We're managers. Even though we have robbed from God, taken that which he's given us and making us in his image and all the benefits of that and turned it in on ourselves and run away from God, either to a far country or just trying to, sometimes we, we sit right beneath him and trying to take from him. Even though we have done that, still yet, God reminds us of the Father's house. He reminds us of his mercy and invites repentance so that when we turn and set our eyes back on the Father's house, he welcomes us with open arms, draws us into his heart, seats us at a table. Even when we rob from God as uh, dishonest managers ourselves, he reminds us and calls us to to again cast ourselves, double up, throw ourselves even more completely on God's mercy and his grace. So that's the invitation today. To cast yourself yet again as you navigate this pandemic road, this travel log through Samaria and Luke, this life of discipleship, this life in the fallen world, as you move through it with Jesus, the call is to cast yourself upon God's grace, trusting in his mercy and his love. And that's why we invited folks to the table today, while we gathered at this great banquet feast in which Jesus offered himself to us. 
Hope this gives you a little sense of our sermon, our conversation today. Um, God bless you wherever you are. Apologize again for the, the poor connection. But that does not mean that our connection with God cannot indeed grow stronger. And through him and his spirit, stronger with each other. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. And this day, in this hour, in this moment, grant you peace. Amen.